Hi, it's co-host Peter Cook with I'd Buy That for a Dollar. We'll be back with Season 5 on October 3rd, 2023. In the meantime, we're going to air some classic episodes as part of our Rewind series. On this Rewind, we go all the way back to Season 1, Episode 8, where we talk about Wes Montgomery, A Day in the Life. If you've ever wondered what's happening in the cold open, as I'm sure many of you have, it's two comments made by co-host Sean. One, excitement over a Monk Montgomery record called Bass Odyssey. And two, responding to Jeremy saying that he doesn't like the Beatles. Enjoy this look back at a different time. I've been looking for this 1971 Bass Odyssey record. This record's dope. I used to rant about people like you at the record store all the time. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about common, inexpensive, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I am your host, Sean Hartman, and I'm joined by my regular co-host, rabid cryptozoologist, Jeremy Ruggles. Hello! And limited edition emoji craftsman, Peter Cook. That's right. Hello! And Jeremy, you picked out today's selection. We got a classic jazz covers record what are we listening to we are listening today to wes montgomery's a day in the life it was the first of three a and m records he put out right at the end of his career foreshadowing (laughs) it was released in 1967 the same year the beatles a day in the life was released I'm going to buck our previous trends of talking a bunch and then playing, and I'm just going to play A Day in the Life, the title track Sounds great. from this sick album. All right, let's hear it. Thank you. 
that song contains a good example of something I wanted to talk about. That initially, when listening to uh, jazz versions of popular songs, I- I'm totally fine with improvisation and jazz. I like a lot of free jazz, but for some reason, when it starts deviating from the structure of a song, I know I can sometimes find it distracting or take me out of what I'm listening to because, in that case, it was really kind of uh, dawning on me how much I enjoy the melody of A Day in the Life, especially hearing it interpreted in a different form than I'm used to hearing it. And then he starts improvising or just kind of straying from the melody in the verses there. And the first time or two, I, I did not like it. But by the third listen, I was on board with it. I really liked the direction Wes was taking with that. While we were listening, we were also talking about the strings, and we seemed to have some difference of opinion in how uh, they affected the song. I don't like them. I love this record, and I don't like the strings. I'm, I'm on board with the strings. That's cool. With what you were talking about, deviating from the melody, I think Wes does a really good job of doing that. I've heard a lot of jazz guys where the melody will be treated just like as the head. They play it straight and then just improvise over the chords and like forget about the melody entirely. I feel like Wes has a good halfway point between those two approaches where it's very groove-based and the improvisation fits very well with the rendition of the song that he's doing. And the strings are interesting because I don't think that they're really based on the string arrangements on the Beatles' original. They seem to be quite their own thing. There's a good sense of dynamic with it, too. I feel like the really cheesy approach that a lot of records from this time period had where the, just the strings were the main part of the song and the other instruments kind of layered on top of it in parts where the strings just kind of accentuate the song in different sections and provide different like mood swells. And I'm, I'm into it. I think Don Sebesky is a genius. I love all the stuff that he did with CTI Records. Yeah, he was the arranger for this one. Mm-hmm. Wes Montgomery did three A&M records. I have all of them, and I like this one most specifically because there's less strings than <laughs> it's, as the. Uh, this was the first one he did. The second one had a little more strings, and by the third one, it was just overpowering with strings. And Wes had just like given up into just playing the melody and then just disappearing. <laughs> <laughs> what What were the other two records? You remember the names of them? Uh, going, going, no, down here in the ground and road something. It's the last one. It's my least favorite okay. West Montgomery I've ever heard. <laughs> I can't help. I'm, you're holding up the album right now and that cover is a definitely an interesting cover. I don't know if you want to talk True, about that. Far out cover. It's just cigarettes and ashes and it's gross and uh when i was i looked up on discogs to make sure that i didn't just get a good deal on this record it actually is very cheap and it is cheap and the comments are just mostly people being like this album cover grosses me out it makes me (laughs) want to vom (laughs) i've always thought it was a super iconic album cover i loved it yeah it catches your eye immediately i think this was the first west montgomery album i bought because of this cover and i was very surprised when i put it on and found that it's smooth jazz very beautiful tones pretty strings around it i don't like the strings being there but they're pretty okay they sound (laughs) 
They, you, they sound nice. You can acknowledge that they are pretty. Unlike the album cover, which is pretty disturbing. And then the back of it has Wes looking... Uh, distraught? Distraught. <laughs> but cool. He's looking good, though. He's... He looks cool, but definitely like he's waiting for his HIV test to come back or something. Maybe you could argue you could argue he's contemplative. Maybe he was fine. I don't know. The album cover is a photograph by Pete Turner, who was a popular photographer of the time, and his artwork was used for almost all CTI releases, which this album is co-released by AM and CTI. Well, aren't you the well-researched fellow on my album? What else do you want to know about your pick? Well, what I'd like to know, Jeremy, is which of these of this trilogy or of Wes Montgomery's albums did you stumble upon first? When did you realize you dug the Wes? This was the first one, and it was because of the album cover, like yeah. I said. And I liked it as soon as I heard it. It surprised me. I didn't expect that to be the sound that was on the album, which is another hot tip for you crate diggers out there take a chance on something because it often will be very different than what you might expect. Yeah. But my draw to Wes Montgomery is how in my mind he stands in deep contrast to the machismo of like guitar culture. I obviously grew up 40, 50 years after this album came out and the guitar developed. I mean, in his time, it wasn't quite what it has become in my time of guys in sleeveless shirts and tattoos like playing as fast as they possibly can and racing each other to see who can get more notes out there so to me Wes Montgomery represents kind of an eschewing of that culture Mm -hmm. and laying back into something that sounds good and is pleasant to hear and gives you time to like appreciate it and take it in instead of just trying to overwhelm you with notes so you don't even understand or like parse what you just heard. Yeah. Uh, Wes was famous for that approach to his playing. One of the distinctive elements to his guitar playing is that he never used a pick. It was all with his thumb because there was more of a tonal range and differences of attack, the way you make the notes sound. Instead of seeing how many notes he could fit into a solo he was more focused on a few notes and making them sound exactly the way he wanted them to. I think one of his well-known pieces is called finger picking. Sure. I think there's a, I think, yeah. well, my yeah. mom, that sounds like a fact. <laughs> Let's go with it. Well, I have news for both of you. Wes did not do that because it was a stylistic choice for him. Ooh. I found the true story you're going to hear it here first, and I'd buy that for a dollar. No, not first. This it's is, out there in the world. This is known information. Original research. <laughs> but Mr. Wes Montgomery developed his extremely unique style as a way to play guitar without pissing off his neighbors. Huh. Nice. Out of necessity. Out of necessity. He was a welder and was married and had kids. He worked all day and then he would come home and he practiced his guitar and his neighbors would yell at him because it was too loud. So he started playing with his fingers in that mellow way that he plays and it became his signature sound as he started playing out 
he just played that way. And that's, I guess, where the choice came in, where he describes that he had to make a choice between this tone that he had developed accidentally and being able to have the technique that other jazz guitar players have by playing the way that he plays it's pretty much impossible to play like as fast as yeah some of the other pickers do it's just a matter of like physics or something <laughs> anatomy <laughs> i don't know a lot of innovation does come out of those type of situations where something out of necessity was done and then hey i kind of like this yeah and on top of it the second element of his style the playing of octaves, which might make sense to music people out there, but to non-music people, I think you just hear it in his playing. Like you hear Wes Montgomery and there's that sound to his guitar that you can't put your finger on. And what that is, is octaves. And the reason he started doing that is because he wanted to fill out the tone more while he was playing quietly with his fingers he found that if he played octaves, it would fill in the tone without actually making it louder. Yeah. He, so he's playing two strings at once. The uh, same yeah. note, right. different portions or yep. sections. Most solos are generally one one note at a time, one string at a time, but he's playing the same note on two different strings, one lower and one higher. So yeah, it gives the solos, once again, a bigger tonal range, a more full sound. He's kind of doubling himself. And it's interesting because we, we touched on that kind of guitar sound with the Spirit episode that we did, talking about how a lot of the solos were doubled up on the recording, you know, where they play the solo, play it again, and then just layer the two tracks. And I wonder how much of that was actually influenced by Wes Montgomery. Some of it had to have been. Oh, very well could be. For sure. Extremely popular guitar technique after the 70s is probably when it started happening the most. Yeah, this album was number 13 on the Billboard charts mm -hmm. when it came out. He was extraordinarily popular. This was right at his peak of his meteoric rise, and he's cashing in his chips on these pop albums that he's putting out yeah. and making a ton of money, but he's still making these great albums. Yeah, one of the few jazz artists that really crossed over into pop appeal household name territory. And this is definitely the easiest Wes Montgomery album to find. This is going to be in most record stores. Yeah, and if I think about other jazz artists in 1967, I think Coltrane was recording Interstellar Space. I think I mean I think that was recorded that year. I don't think it came out until yeah, a few Coltrane years later. Coltrane died in 67. Yeah, so I think that was one of his last recordings. Mm -hmm. uh, Miles Davis, I don't know what he was doing in 67, but... Just thinking of kind of where those guys had gone and where yeah. Wes is at at that same time. 67 might have been like in a silent way. Bitches Brew is 69, I Yeah, think. he was starting to experiment with different vibes and getting further towards the fusion jazz sound, but not quite fully there yet. I don't want to talk about those other guys. I want to talk about <laughs> Wes. And I'm going to play the one song on this album that Wes made himself. And it is called Angel.
Miles Davis in a silent way was 1969. Uh, he did Sorcerer in 67. Excellent. And that's all I got to say about that. What do you have to say, Sean, about your experiences with jazz guitarists? <laughs> that was horribly framed. <laughs> so my personal introduction to Wes Montgomery, growing up in Battle Creek and I was just starting to get into music at a larger scale, was more fascinated. And instead of just hearing what came around, I decided I've got to do some research and figure out what's out there. And super fascinated we lived about a block and a half away from a really good library and i would just walk there all the time and they had an amazing cd section so i was just renting stacks of cds all the time and burning them to my computer and doing research and we just spend hours in my room reading the liner notes of these cds while listening to the albums and when i was getting into jazz my thought was well, I play guitar, so obviously I have to listen to jazz guitar players because that's the only instrument that could possibly influence my playing. I don't play these other instruments. So I just rented these stacks of jazz CDs, and there's several West Montgomery. I think I got some Joe Pass, <laughs> and then some newer guys, John Schofield, people like that. And I just remember realizing pretty quickly that I don't like most jazz guitar players. <laughs> and yeah, shortly yeah. after, yeah, shortly after that, had the epiphany that an instrument can be influenced by any other instrument or any other kind of sound. Just 12 notes, man. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that was kind of a silly opinion looking back on it. But Wes Montgomery was one of the only guys from that little period of discovery that really stuck with me. I remember I just found his sound much more interesting, much more dynamic. I thought the albums were a lot cooler, and I've been a fan ever since. Well... Wes Montgomery also started out fascinated with the guitar. One thing I found interesting, Wes's older brother bought him his first guitar, and he made the money. Get this. This is metaphor time right here. His brother made the money to buy him his first guitar, selling coal and ice, which you guys are just smirking at me. You're like... Jesus Christ, sure. <laughs> but I feel like that really, I don't know, when I hear his guitar, there's like that icy smoothness. But when he starts going at it, I just see it like bubbling up with heat. Like the hot coals? Like Is the that hot what you're talking coals. about? Yes. You see, Is that the metaphor? You see where I'm going with the metaphor here? <laughs> so many layers. <laughs> so his brother bought him his first guitar. He didn't take any lessons. He taught himself. He never could read music hmm. he didn't even intend on becoming a musician when he started learning guitar he simply felt obligated to learn guitar since since he had one since all that coal and ice had been sold yeah one. not uh, a moment wasted just like his playing another metaphor like not a note wasted <laughs> it's a good thing you stayed up those extra 10 minutes last night <laughs> prepping what i do also really like about wes montgomery that at first frustrated me when i was doing the research here is he was boring as a human yeah you there's this cultural trope i feel like that we all get told over and over of the tormented genius and the troubled musician that he does not fit that mold at all. He was 
a nice family dude with kids who was a welder during the day and then he'd go home and do music and when he got good enough he'd go home and play in jazz clubs and there's no stories of him pulling guns on his manager getting blackout drunk and trashing hotel rooms like nothing interesting the dude was just straight boring and i love it we need more of those like you said it's a cultural trope the tortured genius and i think it's unhealthy actually yeah i think it drives a lot of musicians to just start acting it out it's just theater like i want to be a musician so i better get a coke habit especially younger musicians i don't know if either of you had to deal with those people in your teens or early 20s that just want to live that out yeah and it's kind of a drag definitely one thing that was well a couple interesting quirks about him he once he got good enough cannonball adderley happened to catch him playing in indianapolis went to his record label and was like dude you got to sign this dude he's really good so they signed Wes Montgomery, and Wes was playing with his brothers, who became jazz musicians themselves. From all accounts, they were just pretty average at their instruments and at performing, and Wes just transcended to another level where he then got to play with like Charlie Mingus. That's the common way to call him now. No longer Charles. He's now Charlie Mingus. Oh, really? By, by my decree. Oh, okay. <laughs> Peter just bought it entirely. <laughs> Whoa, I missed that memo. Hey, I'm, I'm all about, you know, when we uh, retroactively... Make adjustments. Make adjustments. He was terrified of flying in planes. So <laughs> it quickly created a problem of touring where the whole band would ride in a plane to the next place and he would drive through like a whole day to get to the gig and just be exhausted. But the dude was used to being exhausted because he worked as a welder all day and then would go play. For quite a while, he played two different gigs where he would play a bar until two in the morning and then go down the street and play an after party from 2.30 until five in the morning and he would occasionally just black out from exhaustion of not getting enough sleep and working too hard. Wow. That's about as rock and roll as, yeah, had, as Wes gets. In his own way, he lived the rugged, ragged lifestyle. And this sleep-deprived lifestyle might have something to do with his untimely demise, maybe? True. He suffered a heart attack at the peak of his popularity at the mm-hmm. young age of 45. Right. 45. Which is extremely young for a dude who didn't party. He just worked himself to death. So let that also be a lesson, kids. Don't work yourself to death. Yeah. You got to rest. Just take the plane. Just take You'll the be plane. Fine. The plane's probably going to be fine. It's mm-hmm. safer than the car for sure. Totally. And his his career as a band leader was really short as well, right? True. Because it it was like early 50s. He was on some records as a sideman, but it wasn't until 1960 that he was a band leader on record, right? 59, I believe, was his first record. Okay. And his uh, 
kind of breakout one, the incredible jazz guitar of Wes Montgomery was 1960. And yeah, it was less than 10 years because in 68 or 9, he was dead. 1968. Yep, June 15th. He was dead. So basically one year after this album was released. Yes, one year after this album was recorded. Going back to what you said about famous musicians he played with, there's kind of an infamous story that he did a whole tour with John Coltrane, and there are absolutely no recorded records of this anywhere. I I wish there was. Maybe it'll come out at some point, because I think that'd be a really interesting sound. So they actually played together on this tour. Yeah, and Coltrane offered him a permanent position in the band, because reportedly he really liked the way the band sounded with the guitar, and Wes turned him down. Wow. Yeah, Wes turned down continuing to play with Charlie Mingus as well. Uh, he served as a sideman for Cannonball Adderley. He was pretty much offered many people's dream gigs, but he seemed to not want spotlight, honestly. And then he just started cranking out these studio albums instead of touring. He put out a whole bunch of albums through the 60s and did pretty small amount of touring he did one tour of europe in his whole life Hmm. just so just like the beatles he stopped touring and just made records so he was just following their path he is uh yes wes montgomery ripped off the beatles sean Mm -hmm. did he play on a rooftop i'm gonna play another song i'm sick of this crap from you guys what song are you going to play? I'm going to play Wes Montgomery's hit song, if you want to call it that, off this album. It was called Windy. shit about the montgomery brothers and i'm just like looking these guys up monk montgomery was awesome what is your beef with monk montgomery he did 1971's bass odyssey it's got the coolest album cover i've been looking for that record it's good music i merely purvey the information provided to me 
I have no opinion on Monk Montgomery, Sean. Okay, so this is some real half-ass research you're doing. Is that what you're telling me? No, no real opinions. Did you even listen to the record before we did this episode? I'm not listening to it as we speak still. <laughs> okay. I okay. read that Wes Montgomery's cool, though, on a comment section Yeah, and, and read that, it. And that this record is cheap, so it fits the podcast format. Yeah, I actually haven't listened to anything other than other podcasts for four and a half years now. Do you know what kind of guitar he liked to use? Did you do your research? You got that in the notes? No, it's not in my notes. My guess is it's a hollow body. It's a hollow body, and he would get average guitars and really average amplifiers, and he wanted to be able to switch them out if they broke or whatever without it mattering, is Hmm. what I read. I have a contempt like in my voice now. (laughs) (laughs) So he stole that from Kurt Cobain. Sure, yeah. Well, this says that he uh, favored the Gibson L5. Sure. Yeah. That was probably made here in Kalamazoo. That is entirely possible. And also he played uh, heavy gauge flat wound strings, which would make sense. For the people that aren't guitar players, the heavier gauge strings are usually a metal string with another metal string wrapped around it. And it will make kind of a buzzing type sound if you move something along the string. So if you're using your thumb to play everything would make sense to use the flat wounds to avoid that extra noise and unpleasant sounds makes sense Mm -hmm. it's also Mm -hmm. pretty common for jazz guitarists to use the the flat wound from my understanding right because it's not as bright of a sound a lot of jazz guitar is more of a mellow sound they don't need to be out front like those rock guitar players just Mm -hmm. look at me 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 yeah playing the bridge for the longest time the guitar was viewed as solely a background more rhythm oriented instrument in jazz well i think that was partially due to the fact that they didn't have amplification until the electric guitar came along Mm -hmm. i have no opinion (laughs) what else do you want to talk about in regards to west montgomery nothing okay are we done yeah i think that covers it mostly okay cool album <laughs> did we ever yeah is there anything we did not cover as far as uh do you remember we, where you bought this record oh there we go hey i have zero memory <laughs> of where i bought this record i'm not even making a funny funny here i have just had it for at least six years minimum i remember like listening to it back a ways but i don't even remember when i first got it mm-hmm. i know i was buying a lot of jazz at the time getting really into jazz records for the first time in my life and in particular mostly ornette coleman and thelonious monk but their records are not cheap no not easy to find can't buy those for a dollar i don't think we'll be no. doing covering those artists on this program yeah. We'll just name drop them, mention them when we can. But if you want some more Wes Montgomery to back up your salsa party that you're having, and by that I don't mean the dancing. I mean like you made some good salsa and your friends are coming over and you're going to dip those chips in there and kind of wiggle a little and just enjoy each other's company and you want some music that is going to make you kind of smile instead of just frown and be morose and 
This is your man. Wes is your man. What percentage of your record collection would you say is designed specifically for background low-key parties? I would say... 50, 60%. (laughs) I was going to say like 4%. (laughs) My record collection is 70% sad bastards. And 4% light, almost happy background music. (laughs) And that's what I'm presenting to the world because all these uh, social media aspects of us now... We get to pick and choose which parts of ourselves we put out there for you to perceive. So our listeners now perceive me as a happy guy that just likes some good light fun, you know? And we won't be hearing the sad bastard part of you. Oh, you're going to hear it. (laughs) Peter, do you own this record? I do not own this record. Why? I I was actually unaware of this particular album. and Apparently that A Day in the Life is a pretty well-known composition of his not composition, rendition of his. <laughs> That's pretty well known. I was unfamiliar with this one. I I did know Finger Picking by Wes Montgomery. That was re-released in 1996 when I started playing guitar, and I had a copy of that on CD. Nice. I think I paid more than $5 for it. When I first started working at the corner record shop around 2008 i remember my dad telling me to look for this record for him because after i started getting into records he got back into it he'd sold all his vinyl at one point and switched to cds and then decided to venture back into vinyl and i remember him telling me this was album was a favorite of his at one point and he always loved the artwork and the sound so i bought a copy for myself and was on the lookout for one for him i think i just bought them both from the record store when they came in So you've known this one a long time. Yeah. Well, I will definitely be picking one up the next time I witness one. If you have a spare copy of this or any other Wes albums, please send them to our P.O. Box for Peter. He is uh, deeply in need. Otherwise, you can (laughs) donate to our Patreon now. (laughs) That's right. So we can keep buying records so we can talk about them and keep y'all informed. That's true. Well, that's all I want to say today. Mm -hmm. I would also say that if you like this record, you can buy just about anything that Wes Montgomery is on. And if you don't like the strings, then, you know, don't buy the other two CTI releases. But if you're a normal person and think the strings sound cool, then buy the other two CTI releases and buy anything that you see Don Sebesky did the arrangements on. They're going to do a Wes Montgomery A Day in in the Life naked, stringless, like they did with Let It Be. I'd be all into that. (laughs) Coming to a record store day soon. I'm going to lead us out on Trust in Me, which is my favorite on this album. Thank you all for listening. I'm Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Peter Cook. And I'm Sean Hartman. And this has been I'd Buy That for For a Dollar. dollar. 99 cents plus tax. enjoyed the show you can find more at i'dbythatpodcast.com we're on facebook and instagram and whatever and you can like it you can follow it you can subscribe to it you can comment on it if you have any records you'd recommend to us leave it in the comments or you can email us at ibuythatpodcast at gmail.com if you really really like us you can go visit our patreon at patreon slash i buy that podcast and help us continue to make these beautiful beautiful podcasts